0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. We
1: are very excited to have Naomi Bardock um, today as our presenter, tonight as our presenter. Dr. Bardock is a professor of pediatrics and policy in the Department of Pediatrics and at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. She is the Vice Chair of Health Services Research in the Department of Pediatrics. In recognition of her passion and her capacity for mentoring, she received the UCSF Academic Senate Distinction and Mentoring Award for Associate Professors in 2020. Her research program is focused on improving the quality of inpatient and outpatient pediatric care with a foundation in implementation and dissemination science. From December 2020 until September 2021, she served as the lead of the California Safe Schools for All team, working for the California Department of Public Health to develop plans to ensure public schools could open in fall 2021. So Dr. Bardock today is going to talk about um, what is next for
0: schools in the COVID pandemic. So thank you so much for the opportunity to come talk to you guys. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Um, and also very important acknowledgement, it's a team effort across multiple sectors, the work that, um, that I'll be talking about tonight. Um, so the overview of the talk is uh, the couple different themes I'll be touching on. Um, theme one is sort of pursuing the goal of what we think of as policy relevant evidence, meaning evidence is like, what kind of research did we need to pursue and create in order to inform COVID um, uh, policy for schools. Theme number two is then shifting from making the evidence to making evidence-based policy decisions. So I started out doing research, and then I moved towards helping to support the policy using everything we had learned so far on the evidence. And then theme three is reflecting on lessons learned from from COVID-19 for public health, and then cross-agency leadership is a lot of what I did at the state in order to create, share, and support the implementation of K-12 schools guidance. Because there's one thing to just sort of say, oh, here's this guidance that you should follow. And it's another really important part of the job was actually helping people do the implementation work on the ground. Um, And then finally, we'll do a little bit of looking forward and lessons learned based looking forward based on the lessons learned where we think um, schools might be going next. So a little bit about the impetus for the work. Um, It was both personal and professional. Um, I had my younger son, Uh, who's now 12 years old, really, really struggled on Zoom. He was in fourth grade and he had an undiagnosed ADHD and just basically dropped out of school completely for the end of his fourth grade year and for most of the beginning of his fifth grade year. Um, He had some of the mental health effects that you've already heard about depression anxiety emotional dysregulation Um, and then I also work clinically at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, um, which serves a a population that was disproportionately devastated by the effects of the of the pandemic, um, both in health effects and also lack of equal access access to remote education so in the beginning of the pandemic, in March and April, I was like, how can we get the schools back open? Um, And I just said, I have these research skills, I'm an implementation scientist, I'm, I'm gonna research my way and my children's way and my patients way back to school. Um, my original hypothesis in April of 2020 was that everyone had actually already been infected. I just needed to measure antibodies for the kids and the teachers and everybody with the antibodies was gonna go back to the classroom. So I actually initiated a lot of conversations with names that you might remember or have be familiar with, George Rutherford, um, also people in the San Francisco Department of Public Health as partners to see if we could start testing in the city-run learning hubs. There were these small hubs that, that um, people were, kids were coming back and just doing some learning or just actually sort of getting Um, care in the learning hubs. Unfortunately, that was not really how it played out. It turned out that there there was not actually a whole lot of antibodies already in the community. I thought it maybe had run rampant already, we just didn't know about it. Um, There's a Unidos and Salud um, testing in April of 2020 in the mission. They found that very few children were infected, only about 2.3% of uh, 260, 259 four to 17 year olds in that study. Um, And then there was a random sample they did in Iceland, which found zero cases in kids who are less than 10 years old. And even in a high-risk sample that had been um, symptomatic, traveling, or had a positive contact, they still had a very low case rate in the kids compared to adults 7% versus 14. Um, And and they were finding similar findings in Spain in April to May of 2020. So my idea of just getting everybody tested and back to school didn't, didn't really pan out at the time. We did find in summer of 2020 that there was mounting evidence that schools could be safe and that school closures were harmful, and there were international experiences of how to do it right, also how to do it wrong that we could learn from. We learned a couple things, that there was limited illness burden in children, but we also knew that families with children bear a large brunt of the economic devastation, which was mediated through school closures. It was starkly deepening existing disparities for low SES students, people from poor backgrounds, low socioeconomic status. There was increased anxiety and depression for both students and adults. And there were concern around signs of increased child abuse, domestic and intimate partner violence. Um, and data from prior recessions had shown that that was actually true for prior, in under financial instability, that that could happen. So our goals were to have schools be able to be open, safely and successfully successfully meaning kids in seats, kids being able to attend in person schools safely, meaning it was not going to be a big driver of infections in the community. So that was the, the ongoing twin goals, whatever we could learn to try and get us towards those. So, there are a couple of safe practices that emerged um, masking, 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 which you have now heard about ad nauseum. Um, physical distancing was something that, that um, was a big public health measure, particularly in that first year, 2020, and even into sort of the spring of 2021 um, and even the end of the school year of 2021. People were really focusing on physical distancing, stay home when sick, screening for um, symptoms ventilation, we knew it was aer- that there was aerosol was part of the picture, ventilation was going to be important, symptomatic and asymptomatic testing, and then small stable groups. Those were the other ideas. If you had a small group of students who only mixed with each other, they were less likely then to pass it along across lots and lots of different kids in, in one school environment. For me, I'm all about the successful piece. So these were the this is how to do it safely. There's all these layers. But I was saying the limitation to success and success being defined as as many kids as possible and being able to go back to in-person learning was going to be limited in part by the physical distancing as well as the small, stable cohort Um, operationally. Those are the things that were going to be extraordinarily challenging to schools. And this is all stuff that was happening to uh, happening and thinking with things we were thinking about in the summer of 2020. So for for me, I started to think, okay, let's see if we can do research. My antibody study is not gonna, it's not gonna solve this for any of us. So how can we help on the safe and successful piece? How can we figure out how to do that successful piece? Well, let's try and do some research around it. So, you know, step number one was defining a policy-relevant question. Let's let's figure out can we peel back the physical distancing? Can we peel back the stable cohorts? step number two, involving a lot of stakeholders in order to refine the question and design the study, thinking particularly about like, what are those potential changes in policy that might result? You know, can we peel back those things? Does public health feel comfortable with that? Are the teachers comfortable with that? Are the families comfortable with that? Um, The other Key part of this was timeliness, making sure we tried to get this done quickly in order to be able to get the information out and help change policy or inform policy at least, and then sharing the results, interpreting them in the context of of, um, what was going on during the pandemic and sharing the policy and implementation implications to a broad community. Um, People call that the last mile of implementation science, meaning you've got all the evidence, but how are you actually gonna disseminate it? And actually, as you're doing key step number one, you actually have to think about key step number four, um, thinking about how uh, how your question and how you ask it is gonna actually inform the policy. So this is kind of a picture of the study we designed in in trying to say, how might we answer these questions? Uh, And what you can see here is that this is weeks along the bottom, and then this is school clusters, meaning you can have a couple of schools in a cluster or one school in each cluster. Um, And as the weeks go by, all the schools start with a certain set number of policies, whatever their school opening policies are. And then you start to step in your step one, in this green section, in one school cluster, you peel back one set of policies. So um, for instance, if we were gonna peel peel back the the, um, physical distancing limitation, that would be the only thing that anybody peeled back in the uh, in the entire section of, of, uh, of the green section week after week after week. First, it would just be one school cluster, then two, then three, etc. And then step two would be peeling back another one of those policies. So eliminating stable cohorts. So this was the design. And what you do is you actually do testing every single week um, as you are peeling back policies. So that was the idea um, that you do some analysis along the way to try and see what are your rates looking like, actually, as you're peeling back those policies. So you begin to understand, are there lots of new infections? If the if the policy is not making a huge difference, then when you peel back, it shouldn't make a big difference. Um, and the, this particular design helps us to understand that as it sort of controls, because you're moving each group, each school cluster one at a time, it controls for whatever random variation is happening across those clusters. So it's called a step wedge trial. So uh, in order to try and do some of this work, and that was the idea, we designed the study, and then we got to like talk to all the people because we had to figure out, first of all, what are the stages going to be? What what are the step one policies going to look like? What are the step two policies going to look like? The questions that drove that were, what are the pain points for people? What are the hardest things? I hypothesized it was going to be stable groups and um, social distancing or physical distancing, uh, but we would need to talk to people and see whether or not that was true, and then what is feasible, both logistically, emotionally, because there was a lot of fear in the pandemic, and then what what could the public health leadership tolerate in terms of risk of having this kind of study happening? We talked to a bunch of key stakeholders um, and talked to a ton of scientific collaborators. And I like to say like, COVID-19, and particularly schools in COVID-19, takes unprecedented levels of collaboration, and that's really what we saw. I had never hung out with a virologist before. I had hung out a little bit with infectious disease, but like there were so many people who had to get together and share their brain power and their expertise in order to try and get these um, kinds of things answered and understood. So I just listed here the names. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can see it's a lot of people in virology. You might have heard of Joe DeRisi, very famous, fantastic work that he's doing. Karina Marquez actually just won a wonderful prize at UCSF for mentorship. Um, and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, Pediatrics and Preventive Medicine, tons of people there and across the the chair of the department, and also uh, George Rutherford, who's in preventive medicine as a pediatrician, Ted Rule is infectious disease, etc. Oh, and I'm sorry, and Bob Harrison is another person to call out. He actually had worked very closely with teachers, so his perspective was also very helpful as somebody who thought a lot about occupational health, from a teacher perspective. And then San Francisco Department of Public Health, Tomas Aragon, who actually is a leader at the, he's the the director of the Department of Public Health, California Department of Public Health now at the state. He was in San Francisco at the time and many other people school administrators. We were talking to Oakland USD, San Francisco USD, San Mateo County Superintendents, Alameda County Superintendent, um, the Department for Children, Youth, and Family uh, Leadership here. We talked to teachers at the CTA, the um, local uh, UESF, United Educators of San Francisco, and then individual teachers with a real shout out to Emily Frank, who's a teacher at OUSD, but also a pediatrician who trained at UCSF and gave us again a lot of perspective about what um, how the teachers were feeling on the ground Um, and then working with families as well there's a group called decrease the distance and then there was the cares webinar which is a UCSF um, sponsored group that was also focused on how do we support schools to open Uh, and then there was funding from a lot of different people so uh, unfortunately the summer surge really decreased confidence so if you guys remember you know March is when the pandemic hit there was like some cases some cases and then everybody sort of said, Well, maybe we're kind of done. And so in the summer, people opened up a little bit. And there was a big, big surge. Well, not not as big as what we've seen so far. But it was a it was a surge at the time that scared people a lot. So my study design went down the drain, because everybody got very nervous, and nobody was interested in peeling back any layers at all. They all said, Nope, just keep everything like, if we're lucky, we're gonna open, we're just not even gonna peel back anything. So we were still wanting to build on the momentum we had going from all the partnerships and stakeholder discussions we'd had. So I actually decided to do at least some some work um, on how we might do school-based testing. And we did a San Francisco summer camp study that was a pilot test basically to say, is it feasible and is it acceptable for students to do their own testing? Because if you remember, like, way back then, there was like this test that you had to put really far back in the back of your nose. And when people were doing it, the people who were collecting the test, it was somebody else who had to collect the test. They had to wear full gowns, N95 masks, face shields, gloves. It was a lot of work that people had to do. And if the kids could actually self-collect their swabs from what they call the um, anterior nares, the front of the nose, uh, then we wouldn't have to have all of that protective equipment. The kids could do it themselves. It's a lower risk situation. It's actually a very feasible model for a school if we're going to do school-based testing. So um, that was the the, uh, study that we did. We also observed the camps in action, and we saw that kids were actually able to do successful masking. They were able to stay in their stable cohorts. They did physical distancing, hand hygiene, ventilation. They could actually do self-testing very nicely on their own to the youngest age of kindergarten. And I joke, but it's not such a joke, but I joke as a pediatrician, it's like picking your nose with the tip basically. And kids are really good at picking their nose. And so they're really good. They just go to town, they like run around there. They got great samples. We found that there weren't any documented cases by PCR either at the beginning of the camp. We did find that there were some um, antibody uh, positive folks because we also did an antibody uh, test using saliva. But a couple of things that we found the implications were that it's possible to follow public health principles in, in the indoor setting. Um, so schools could, they could do it. And then student self collected tests were very feasible and acceptable for kids as young as kindergarten. The other study that um, I, I was involved in, but was led much more by other people um, was a modeling study that was also trying to get at this question is like, what are the most important interventions? And basically what they looked at is they said, they modeled what it would look like. So they took the data they knew and they surveyed people actually about how they moved around and how much interaction they had. Um, and they modeled how uh, how the infection might move it throughout a population, depending on what kind of intervention you did. So I don't know if you can see, but the top one, it says no additional precautions. Here in the teachers, you have in the dark blue, the elementary school students, in the lighter blue, middle school, and the very lightest blue, you have high school. And you can see that actually there's a lot of um, infection that's going to go on. Uh, At the bottom it says proportion of each group experiencing symptomatic illness over the fall semester. There's a lot of illness that, that can get passed around, particularly in the high schools and also the middle schools Mostly because of not having stable cohorts in those settings, as well as having a potentially higher rate of infecting each other in the older age groups, the older you get, it, it looks like at the time and still looks like now, you're more likely to pass it along to each other in the older age groups. But then if you add uh, testing, you get monthly testing of teachers, teachers and students, and then weekly testing of teachers um, and weekly testing of teachers and students. You can see the weekly testing makes a difference. It can help, particularly if you're doing weekly testing of teachers and students, but the masks make a huge difference alone and the stable cohorts made a big difference alone. And if you put them all together, you really have moved those numbers back. So this is really helpful information to show us what, what was potentially possible, and where people should be focusing their time and energy and attention. So it's great if you can do everything, but if you have to focus on one or two things because you're an under-resourced school, it's, it was really helpful for people to know, particularly at that time because testing was so limited, it was really helpful to know that testing is not like the be-all and end-all, it's going to be an incredible layer. It's a great tool, but it's not the be-all and end-all if you have these other interventions in place. A couple of other things. So uh, although we couldn't do that stepped wedge trial that I showed you, this was the this was our next best study design, which was basically go observe once they reopened some learning hubs in the fall of 2021. We went to uh, sorry, fall of 2020, we went and we observed how people were um, interacting and what they actually, what practices they were doing. And we tried to see if there was a difference in behavior in those settings was there a difference in the transmission level? And uh, the thing that we found, we actually, in those, because people were so locked down still there are actually still very few infections during that um, during that period of time compared to what we've what we've seen since there's very little transmission on the school campuses so there even though there are thirty six cases, there's only one transmission as adult to adult so the implications were that you could implement layers very feasibly in higher risk situations um, meaning these learning hubs were actually like m- m- very um like people were sort of worried that the kids who are, uh, didn't have as stable a home or were less socially uh, regulated or socially like able to, to follow along with those instructions, um, that there was a worry that in those learning hubs, there'd be a lot of transmission. And we said, no, absolutely not. Those kids are great. They're totally able to like, go along. School is a great environment for teaching people how to like do what their peers do. Um, and so there was no student transmissions and those layers were, were quite feasible. And then the last study uh, is sort of thinking about one other piece of the, of the puzzle, which for, for many of us is still actually something that we have to think about, which is if you have symptoms, when should you go get testing? And um, how can we inform national and state recommendations for symptom screening in order to limit the missed school days for testing? Because particularly in this past year, we've been having people, um, they have to go home and they get tested if they're symptomatic. Um, and so we basically looked at symptom screening results, meaning it, when you came into uh, Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland, Mount Zion, and the um, Palo Alto Medical Group. Um, Anybody who came in and got screened for symptoms, and then a test, we actually were able to say, well, what symptoms are associated with a positive test? Um, Interestingly enough, we found that the highest um, likelihood of you actually having a positive test had to do with being exposed prior, which is not that surprising, and loss of taste or smell, also not that surprising. Although, um, to be clear, this is actually an earlier variant of COVID. Now, loss of taste and smell is not as, as common. Um, So it would still probably predict it pretty well, but it's not going to show up as as frequently in our, in in anybody who has it. Um, And the things that were very, very common, not surprisingly, nasal nasal congestion and rhinorrhea, meaning runny nose, sore throat, were really common, but were not as, as likely to be associated with COVID because those are symptoms of so many other viruses that children have. So having every kid with a runny nose leave and go take a test might actually not be the best um, use of resources and would be an unfortunate loss of uh, missed school days. So that's the that was the last finding we calculated that you know how many missed school days there were and there was a high number of missed school days associated with exclusion and testing to find one case of COVID-19. Um, particularly for those non-specific symptoms—the runny nose, the cough, the sore throat. So the findings from that paper is that that probably would lead to excessive missed school days. Um, this particular finding has not impacted policy as much as um, I think might be helpful. It's it'll continue to be a conversation I think for people um, as we continue to go through the pandemic and it becomes hopefully closer to um, being endemic. So, a couple limitations, as I mentioned before, about this particular study was the original strain and, and maybe a little bit of the alpha variant. But we need to basically repeat the study. Actually, I think in order to make it more relevant, the option now to consider, based on what we found, is to allow for rapid tests to clear symptomatic students if they have non-specific symptoms, meaning on school site. Schools can do it, and some schools actually implemented this throughout California. Um, they doing a, a rapid test right there in order to say you should go back to class. Or consider not excluding kids for very common non-specific symptoms. Now I'm going to transition to the next phase of the talk, which is talking a little bit about the public health leadership stories and lessons learned, which is different from the evidence generation. You remember theme one is how do I, how do you create information, research to answer these questions? And now um, I'm going to talk about how I moved into a leadership role, thinking about the policy and how to create policy and what the lessons learned. So, um, part two, making evidence based policy decisions. So how do we put what we know into practice? As I mentioned before, it's called the last mile problem. So sharing and interpreting the science uh, and doing thought leadership is another piece that I ended up starting to do, mostly because I was so obsessed with how we get schools open, so I was reading kind of everything. So I got invited to do Medicine Grand Rounds at UCSF in July 2020. I Then they established the CARES group, which is, um, it was a group of uh, UCSF doctors who were all getting tapped by their school um, communities to help figure out how to reopen schools. So we actually started to get together and sort of share resources and figure out, you know, what what is the advice that we, we think is the right advice to give to schools. Um, I had a media collaboration. I did a New York Times op-ed, and then I ended up consulting with the Chicago Public Schools around testing uh, mostly based on all the experience I had doing the testing study. And then I started to work with San Francisco um, Department of Public Health as part of my service. I got deployed to support the design of the school testing strategy for schools in San Francisco. And then I got invited to go and serve the state of California in the Department of Public Health and Health and Human Services to lead a multi-agency um, safe schools team, which basically was a cross-disciplinary team where they said, you know, there's like, the public health piece, but public health cannot do this in a vacuum. They have to be partnering with Department of Education. So I partner very closely with Department of Education, State Board of Education, um, the Office of the State Architect because of the ventilation questions, um, the Office of uh, State Health Planning and Development um, for also thinking about how to do the the, uh, implementation on the ground of all those different layers that we talked about. So extraordinarily interesting and complicated uh, work to get everybody to sort of thinking about it and communicating well together. And I put this slide up basically just to give a reminder of the timeline of schools and thinking about schools in context of how, we, how you think about how that policy unfolded. So this is sort of a policy analysis and helping, helping you and us, everybody, make sense of how the whole thing played out. Um, if you remember, first we shut down, since we thought that schools would drive transmission and children would get COVID and, um, and would be a place where every it spread everything through the schools. Then we thought maybe here right before the surge happened, maybe it would be safe to open. We were looking at other countries. They understood how to do schools, you know, safe schools with safety layers and how important it was to do in-person instruction. Then there was a surge that happened here, a winter surge. You know, we started to reopen a little bit, but then there was a big surge that everybody really shut down. Um, And on the other side of the surge, there was a big emphasis of in-person instruction and preparing for that. And I'm going to sort of go through this timeline a little bit more slowly and pull out some pieces that I think are quite policy-relevant and interesting to think about how, how and why things played out the way they did in California, how schools reopened. So, um, the and the theme here is actually that there's different branches of government and how they kind of worked together or didn't work together and how they moved policies. So, if you remember on March 4th, a uh, state of emergency was declared. That's a, declared by the executive branch. That was Governor Newsom saying, "I'm declaring a state of emergency." The schools shut uh, many of them around March 7th. There was a student testing. There students testing positive COVID-19, and the state's fifth largest school district announced their closure. And many other schools just followed suit almost immediately. And like, like I mentioned, they thought it would be a source of viral transmission. Um, there was the assumption that kids would be the vectors. Uh, There was uncertainty about how to protect students and staff and the schools pivoted very, very quickly to distance learning and then trying to support families um, who who needed the support producing, you know, giving them school nutrition, providing computing devices and, and other things. Um, SB 98 in the in the summertime was actually a really really big moment and is a legislative action um, where when the, the legislature and the governor partnered together to allocate an additional 5.3 billion dollars for schools to respond to COVID 19, including really important safeguards, distance learning addressing the digital divide, but it also set requirements for distance learning, mental health, student re-engagement, and, in- and in-person instruction. And it it provided a do not harm clause, meaning if you didn't teach in person, that that your money was gonna be fine, schools were gonna be, get paid. And it felt like totally the right thing to do at the time, but it had implications and ramifications um, until it sundowned a year later in June of 2021. This is the the next phase of the roller coaster this is where I usually start screaming. Um, the as in this particular part which is around September 2020, we saw the science, but the implementation was really really really, really hard to execute and um, I don't know if you remember this when California had all those different parts of the blueprint, they called it the the you know blueprint for California, and you were in the orange phase or the red phase or the purple or the deep purple, and there were union negotiations were very, very difficult because of that hold harmless clause. Um, and the limited power then that people had to do negotiations to basically say, you know, let's reopen schools here, let's show that you can that you can do it safely. Everybody was just trying to figure out how to open and to figure out how to implement what we knew. Um, There were a lot of public schools in more rural counties who went back to in-person instruction, but most urban counties stayed remote. Many did learning hubs, those smaller hubs where kids could go in, kids who didn't have digital access at home or who needed sort of childcare at home so families could go back to, um, to work. Uh, and then, mostly private schools marshaled the resources um, and reopened for in-person learning. They weren't subject to the whole harmless because that was just for SB ninety-eight. It was just for public schools, um, and so there were a lot of public schools. Oh, sorry, private schools who opened during that time. San Bernardino, in the sort of beginning of December or mid, it might have been actually more middle of December, um, announced that they were not going to reopen for the entire rest of the school year. And the, the sense in the governor's office and the state of California government in general was the real concern that many other schools were contemplating similar decisions, and they really wanted to figure out how can we get things to a place where people actually feel like they can reopen, we have to reassure people that they can actually consider reopening because they felt it was it was such an important um, emphasis. So that's actually when they brought me on. And they formed the Safe Schools team was in December, and we put out guidance in January that created a lot more clarity and a way a way forward. And again, that's that that guidance. It was a public health order. It's a an executive order, so it's executive branch. So you're seeing again how how are the levers of government using. try and moving in order to try and help um, support schools in order to be able to reopen both safely and successfully so you've heard about executive orders um, and then legislative movements and then uh, or legislative um, uh, laws that were passed and then now again here's an executive uh, branch um, uh, order Uh, and then in February of 2020 one, um, the governor really accelerated vaccines in a huge effort to get um, vaccines out to the K through 12 school staff, leading leading to most people actually receiving access by early March. Again, that's an executive branch move. Um, in March, on March 5th, they passed uh, the legislature and the governor partnered to to pass something called AB 86, which allocated an additional 6.6 billion to help accelerate reopenings and um, and actually uh, incentivize schools to to reopen. So they said, if you reopen your schools by XYZ date, then you'll get extra money in, in order to help you support doing that safe school reopening. And that actually was relatively effective incentivizing schools and feeling like, OK, we're going to empower you. They also like ramped up a huge testing program for the schools in order to support schools to reopen. Um, so that was helpful. It, it didn't solve it. There were a lot of schools that remained closed, but um, but it, it, it helped in, in many ways. Um, and then you can see in the summertime SB 98 Sundown. So there was no longer a whole har- harmless clause. It meant that there was a lot of emphasis basically saying full in-person instruction is the goal for when we open in September. And then uh, the CDC and CDPH guidance came out around the middle of the of the summer. So the CDC released their guidance, and then shortly thereafter, California Department of Public Health guidance was released. And you may remember there was a lot of controversy at the time around masking. CDC said, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to mask, and if you aren't vaccinated, then you do have to mask. And California Department of Public Health said, you know what, we're just going to have everybody masked in schools because we don't want there to be this weird, like who is, um, you know, who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, there's going to be have to be a masking police. And there's also going to be kids who then know you got vaccinated, you didn't get vaccinated. Why are you wearing masks? Why are you not wearing masks? And we knew it was already contentious at that time, it was just going to lead to a lot of stress in the schools. Um, so that was the the decision behind masking. Um, and the the balance was, if if this masking stayed, it meant that um, according to the CDC guidance, if we f- were following the, the precepts of the CDC guidance, that actually meant that we could get rid of the physical distancing requirement because it was still in the CDC guidance in, in the summer of 2021. And so we said, stick with the masks, don't do any physical distancing, full in-person structure. Every kid can be in a seat um, and then we also said, if you have a mask on and there's an exposure, you can actually stay in school. That was another piece that, um, that the CDC had in very tiny print and we picked up on it and said, okay, keep the kids in school. If they have masks on and they they can do a little bit of testing and they can stay in school. They do not have to leave school at, you know, for 10 days at a stretch just because they got exposed. Um, so that was a big, a big part of what happened in the summer to really try and help support schools um, to stay open uh and then um the one other piece that was helpful for us to know about, which I'll tell you a little bit more in a minute or two is about there was a study that came out of Marin that nobody else knew about yet, because it hadn't been published. But we had heard about from the Marin Department of Public Health, where there was a big outbreak in a school from a teacher who was not masked. And you could see it was like across the entire entire classroom that basically she had been reading out loud, and it just infected a ton of kids. And so um, we said we got to keep the masks on it was Delta. we that was Delta. And Delta was all sudden so much more infectious than anything we had seen before. And so um, the goal was to keep kids in school and not have them go out when they're infected. So this is the sort of conceptual model just to help people think it through. um, What the spread from schools that helped us to think about, you know, how should schools be safe. So if you think about it, step one, in order for there to be spread in schools or anywhere else, there has to be virus in the community, then the virus has to get onto the school campus. Then there has to be in-school transmission. It goes from one person to another. And then it has to go back out of the school and infect somebody else who wasn't on the school campus. In the first phase of the the pandemic, we focused a lot on step three. We shut down the schools. Then we focused on physical distancing, small cohorts, hand washing, walking in one direction in the hallways. We had some ventilation. But as we moved into the next year in 2021 to 2022, we knew that we could do a lot with vaccines to get rid of virus in the community, that we could really decrease that burden, um, which would decrease the likelihood of a virus in school. We also knew we had school-based testing that was much stronger than it had been before. So we could do less of the focus on physical distancing and stable cohorts on that step three. And that's what really allowed us to have full, um, full school again. Uh, So these are the key safety layers. This is the famous Swiss cheese model where the virus is going through the Swiss cheese, but if it goes through this hole, it doesn't get through this because there's a a solid wall there, et cetera. So that's a way of decreasing your risk of, of getting any kind of transmission by putting together a couple different layers. So layer number one, everybody's vaccinated. Layer n- number two is testing. And if you're, st- if you're sick, you should stay home. Um, layer number three, just use the masking indoors, some hand hygiene, and then use your ventilation, either by improving air, indoor air quality or using the outdoors when possible this is the reason we went with that model like i said we were debating should we do the cdc you know mask optional thing and this is really what drove the point home for us that we should just like okay delta's coming it's ugly this was from may 2021 here's the teacher in the front of the classroom and um, all the light gray boxes are light blue boxes are symptomatic patients and then anything that's outlined in blue, so that's positive, 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 symptomatic, positive, positive, even at the back of the class, positive and symptomatic, um, there was a lot of infection that came through that classroom just from that one teacher being unmasked and reading in the front of the classroom. Uh, and then this is just another um, picture from that study that shows the how this is the original teacher and that there's an uh, you know infection that spread to many other students. And then there's another small cluster that they discovered through using um, fancy genetic biological testing, looking at genomic sequencing, that there's actually another class at the same school that spread actually at a sleepover party. So there are a couple key points. We knew that um, from this study, spread was going to potentially happen outside of school as well, which is an important for the people who are worried about going back to school. You know, we knew that we could do safe layers in school and we knew things happen outside of school, so it wasn't that school was the only place it was going to happen. And school could be a relatively stable and structured environment where there would be less chance of, of uh, infection getting passed compared to your sleepover parties, which is what this was. And then a couple of other important take home points based on what was happening in that teacher classroom was, you know, make sure she, you're vaccinated. I'm sorry, I forgot to say she wasn't vaccinated. Um, so make sure people are getting vaccinated, putting on their masks, stay home when they're sick because she was symptomatic at school. Um, and as I mentioned, it informed our mask policy um, and why we decided to keep masks on at the beginning of the school year. And then uh, a couple things to just highlight about the public health leadership jobs. So there's like very specific decisions like that. And then there's how do we help support schools in the huge diversity of California's 58 eight counties. And I just showed these pictures of, you know, these are the case rates in December 2021. Um, and then these are the Newsom recall results. So, you know, you, many, many of you guys have probably heard that there's that, that the political divide um, reflects also the divide of how people um, uh, felt about and acted on their um, COVID mitigation strategies, um, but the thing that for me was extraordinarily meaningful is that we had a partnership every week. I would go I would present to 58 counties, all the Department of Public Health um, leadership, to talk to them about schools. It was a big, big meeting about everything, but I always had a section on schools. And working with the diversity of public health officers, everybody was extraordinarily dedicated to keeping their communities as safe as possible and to getting them through the pandemic in whatever way was gonna work for their community. Um, so it was a lot of, I, I really appreciated actually how much people care about doing it together. And you know, despite whatever political differences there were, there was a very common shared goal of we need to work on this together. Um, There was a lot of Teflon. I joke, you know, I'm a pediatrician. Like, I'm very nice. I'm not used to getting attacked. I got attacked a lot. So so I had to kind of build up a little bit of Teflon. Uh, It was also a good learning experience. I got really attacked on Twitter for a period of time. And I have to say the best lesson for me, which I did because I was working too hard to do anything else, but I just stayed off Twitter. I heard from somebody that it was ugly on Twitter against me. And I said, okay, like, uh, then I will not be looking at Twitter because I got to get this job done. Uh, and it does allow, you know, for uh, some more smacks for bravery when your courage is really needed. And actually, when we rolled out that mask guidance in the summer of 2021, we needed some courage to just say, like, we think this is the right thing to do. I know it's hard, but it's probably the right thing to do. Um, so that was helpful. And this is the slide I use quite often, which is about the unprecedented levels of collaboration. Uh, we really had to call on people to, to pull together. If you want to go quickly go alone and if you want to go far you got to go together so we this was particularly important when we we're dealing with the controversy of the CDC putting out their mask guidance and then we put out mask guidance that was that was fairly different um and this is another idea which which is that if we don't enforce COVID enforces because a lot of the schools um and some of the public health leadership were saying, like, "Well, California's guidance says we have to wear masks; that masks are mandatory in schools. But what if we don't enforce? What's going to happen? What are you going to do?" Basically, you know, somewhat contentiously, they would say, "What? Do you, what what's going to happen?" And we said, "You know, you should do it. This is our recommendation. Um, and if we're not enforcing it, it's not that nothing is going to happen. It's like COVID's going to enforce it, and it's going to, you know, ha- result in in infections in your schools." Um, so. We we did call on people to sort of get come together and say this is a really important thing. We were thinking at the time that we just had to like, you know, COVID was pulling out the big guns, was pulling out Delta, and if you're in the Alien Invader movie, this is the last end of the Alien Invader movie. Everybody needs to come together, get vaccinated, put, keep your mask on, get Delta out of the way. Um, and uh, and it was it was an important thing for people to be able to to try and come together. And most people actually really did go along with it. There were a couple of counties who didn't. Um, uh, so um, it was contentious, but I, I think a helpful um, moment where we could all try and come together. Uh, and then I just sort of pull out this last piece, which is the role of the judicial branch. So we've talked about legislative, executive branch, and the reason I pull it out is because. Um, we got I got sued twice personally sued along with Governor Gavin Newsom so I have the dubious distinction of being named on two lawsuits with Governor Newsom and uh, one was about distancing in March of 2021 uh, and and high schools not being able to open as early as other schools and then the second one was the masking um, lawsuit and uh, it, the, these people used the judicial branch when they felt like The legislative body and the executive branch were not doing what they wanted them to do so that people went to to suing the government Um, and it wasn't just about schools they there were multiple suits that came out against um against the government for multiple different reasons uh around covid so um uh i think it's it it was um for me when i got sued the first time i was upset about it and and felt terrible and my husband said it's schools naomi it's schools and COVID. of course you're gonna get sued. I just was wondering why it had taken so long. So, you know, I think that was that was the truth. It's very contentious. It's still contentious. Um, The masking lawsuit we knew was going to come because people had said, if you do this, we're going to sue you. And uh, we actually thought that it was the right thing to do and to say, Okay, you're going to sue us. That is what it is, Um, in part, because it meant that the at the state level, we could take the heat of dealing with the masking issue and take that off the backs of the public health officials in those counties and take it off the backs of the school administrators because the school administrators were getting a ton of heat from both sides people who wanted to keep the mask on people who didn't want to keep the mask on and that level of conflict and contention in the face of what we knew was going to be a very infectious delta variant, um, we just thought we would take the heat and you know accept the risk that we were going um, that we, that that was going to happen. So the last sort of theme is um, related to that theme of, you know, how do you make these decisions about how to help out communities? When do you step in and have um, and actually have state level control as opposed to local control? Um, One really important piece was that that I discovered or that I sort of thought about on reflection was how important it was to sort of listen for and elicit and lift up all voices. We got a lot of incoming furious email from people who are very um, activated and empowered and tended to be higher um, uh, socioeconomic status. Um, And we didn't hear from a lot of people who are disenfranchised. And so I actively reached out to a bunch of people around the state um, with help from people in the um, Department of Public Health and other state partnerships to basically find out, like, what is everybody else feeling who's not sending us a lot of angry emails? and part of the reason why we also weren't hearing from those people is because we had safety level layers in place and they felt comfortable with what was happening. People don't tend to say, I'm comfortable. If they're comfortable, they just feel comfortable. So they don't send me emails. Um, so I you know, say, this is a lesson I learned from being in leadership, and I pass on to other people, you should send the emails, appreciative emails, or if you feel like something is going wrong, you should also send the emails because they do make a difference. People listen to them. Um, but we, as public leadership, we also need to listen, remember to listen to the often silent voices to reach out to them. Otherwise, just the loud voices dominate and, and you miss the fact that there's a bunch of disenfranchised people who you are also trying to help um in state leadership to make sure that they have a you know high quality of life and public health is, is supporting them as well um so a couple just to summarize a couple of stories and lessons learned um there's that interplay between the legislative branch the executive branch and the judicial branch and how they work together and you know how how they provide a way for people to have voice or not to have voice um, are very I think were really interesting pieces from to looking back at what happened during COVID. The other piece is always thinking about compared to what so people were saying like it has to be you know a safe we looked at all these metrics again every day all the time public health the uh, whole you know our all of our communities were focusing on COVID rates. And we didn't have great data on how many kids were missing school and how much mental health stuff was going on, which to me is the successful piece. So you can't just look at the public health numbers of COVID cases. You also have to think about what are the what are the other elements that are really important in the mental health of the kids, the long term you know, economic, productivity for the kids. I mean, being able to be successful adults is partly about being in school as well as your mental health. So um, that to me is a really important piece that I don't think we ever really got great data on, on the compared to wet piece. We had the, the COVID data, but we didn't have the compared to wet part. Uh, You've already heard me talk a fair amount about the only way we're going to get through this is is through unprecedented levels of collaboration. Um, The great diversity of California and how important it was to partner with local public health officers and partner with schools. Um, We did a ton of work with the county uh, superintendents uh, and many of the principals throughout the state. Um, helping to remind everybody that COVID is the enemy rather than each other. There's a lot of contention, as you all know, um, and the more we can remember that COVID is the problem rather than, um, you know, other people who are in leadership who are trying to um, uh, prevent it from being a problem, I think it's very helpful. We're, of course, in a different phase now, I think, than we were then um, because of vaccines and because we have better therapeutics. But, um, uh, but certainly people forgot sometimes that COVID was the enemy, um, and then fighting inequity. So whose voices get heard? Thinking about that, listening to the silence. What are we not hearing? And making sure we're lifting up all the voices. And then to finish off with um, sort of setting the stage for some of the key lessons learned, and therefore where we're going to, um, you know, where it might how to sort of look forward and think about what we learned and how to continue to get through this pandemic, slash hopefully we're moving into endemic. Um, so this is a, a map of school closures um, from the what's called the Burbio School Tracker. It, this is from December. Um, I just used the snapshot because um, it shows that California is actually relatively sparse. And in terms of school closures, most of these are actually closures in rural counties that actually didn't go along with the mask guidance. Uh, and that likely we kept schools open, I think because A, because of the masking, B, we had a decent number of vaccinations in, the, in that age group. Um, Uh, Sorry, at that point, it was actually just um, 12 and up. But even so, we had some decent vaccination levels in many of those in many communities. Um, And then also that modified quarantine, meaning you could stay in school if you got exposed, um, were all things that I think really helped us to keep the schools open. Um, And uh, much of what we did actually during the school opening phase is when there were schools where there were huge outbreaks, we would send Um, testing teams and vaccination teams out there to try and help address whatever was going on in those communities that tended to be the under under vaccinated communities. Um, So I think those were important lessons learned. Uh, There are a couple things that we did right before the schools opened in the summertime, which was actually doing communications campaign for the other half, so some people were, you know, don't make me mask, I'm done with the pandemic. And then there's a large group of other people who are quite worried about sending their kids back to school. So we did a lot of um, work on a communications campaign to actually help instill confidence. Um, as I explained, we did the mask mandate, there, but no minimum, minimum physical distancing. That test to stay um, tool was very helpful, the high vaccination rates. And then a uh, theme I didn't talk about is that there's a huge testing capacity with um, $887 million uh, for school-based testing for the state of California minus LA, which had its own $300 million pot, so um, so we oversaw that whole um, testing program, actually, um, of over a billion dollars for just school-based testing alone, which also really helped um, provide a, a safe, safety layer as well as a way of providing confidence for people. So just to finish up, where are we now and what should we consider on the pathway forward? Um, our current situation is that there's still some ongoing surges, unfortunately, um, masks are off, but sometimes coming back on. There's like Alameda is now doing some required indoor masking. Um, there's still long isolation and quarantine practices. Um, we are luckily coming into vaccines for the youngest kids, and we can still leverage some tools, which is vaccines, masks, testing, ventilation, um, as we might need them for the next you know, phases of this, we know we're probably going to continue to have ongoing surges. It does not look like COVID has decided to stop making variants. Um, I didn't talk about the Omicron surge and how that affected things, but it's an ongoing evolution. But I think that safe and successful are still the twin goals. Um, The theme now, I think, is much more about not on our watch, schools should be safe places for kids to be able to go to school, which is why it's still okay to put the mask on sometimes. Even if in the Warrior stadium, no one is required to wear masks, kids are required to go to school and we wanna keep them there. So using masks judiciously, keeping taking them off, putting them back on as we go through waves is totally not an unreasonable way of doing it because we're kind of stuck in the situation where it's gonna to continue to go on for a while and then schools continue to be a structured environment. So those masking policies are just generally more effective in school than they will be outside of school because outside of school, kids might still pass around to each other. But when you're on school campus, kids should know like, okay, they're not going to have a huge risk of getting um, COVID, and families should know their kid is not going to have a huge risk of bringing COVID back from the school. So uh, I know San Diego Unified is now doing a mask policy linking to case rates in the community and outbreaks on campus. So that is where they're thinking about an on and off ramp for masking. Um, There was a big push last year in the summertime when we were talking about our guidance, people said, what does our off ramp look like? And I think we're really at a place now where we can talk about doing off ramps, um, where we say, okay, if we're not surging, Fine, let's just kind of go back to normal. Like, you know, everybody ma- vaccinate as much as you can, but like masks are recommended maybe in some situations, but really they're optional, right? That's what it is in SFUSD right now. Um, and I think we can sort of move in that direction. Um, and I would I would definitely say that as we think about how to use masks, it's probably really helpful to think about if we can use masks to help minimize those isolation and quarantine practices. If you're in the setting of good masking, so you know, kids have to stay out for a long time if they're um, if they're positive, if they have been exposed, sometimes if they're not vaccinated, and some of the younger kids. Um, so right now, for the kids. The fear about getting COVID is about missing on on events and schools. It's not about putting a mask back on. They're like, okay, whatever. If I have to put the mask back on, not a big deal. So if we're surging, it makes sense. Let's use those masks to make it so the kids don't have to miss out on things anymore. So those are the kind of common sense. I'm no longer in California leadership. So you don't don't take what I say as like an indicator of what California is gonna do, but I certainly feel like these kinds of common sense approaches are still where we are gonna need to go um, as we continue to, to manage these surges going up and down a bit. Um, and I just I often end with this quote, which is um, a James Baldwin quote, which is ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. So um, it's part of the reason why I do all the research to try and figure out what is the right information. It's not we don't we don't. I I don't have a political perspective on this. I just want to get kids back to school and do it in the safe way possible, right? Like that's kind of the right approach is that we should support everybody to get the education um, in the way they they need to, and it should be informed by evidence. And I think that's it. I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks,
1: Naomi. So the first one that came in was was when you were describing developing plans for the school reopening. Um, The question is how were or are immunocompromised or chronically ill or disabled students and teachers and staff, right? The whole groups there
0: um, accounted for in the research and in the planning. Mm-hmm. yeah it's a really important question um, it was that was a complicated piece of it um, we had in the guidance a discussion and CDC has a nice section in their guidance also about um, disabled uh, students and there's a there's a tension there there's two different pieces there one of which is um, how do we keep the school environment safe for kids who are immunocompromised um, or who have a chronic condition that might make them at, at higher risk, um, and that's part of the reason why it tended to be a little bit more on the let's keep the masks on because we need everybody to have access to a safe um, education, a, a safe and free education. Um, so that was a, that's a California specific piece of it. Um, uh, and then the other part of it is also is there are some kids who because of their disability or learning difference, um, particularly kids on the autism spectrum or um, who have sensory uh, uh, integration disorder, they had a lot of trouble with masks. So, trying to figure out how could you support um, everybody to feel like you were in a safe environment. And so that for that second situation, sometimes we would recommend doing more testing for those kids or getting better testing resources so they could do more frequent testing. So they could be in the class and not um, not necessarily wear a mask, but also not have to be totally ostracized to like the other side of the room. Um, they could still actually be. In in school,
1: so you know, I'll ask another question that just came in that I think has some relation to what you just were talking about. And um, the question is: Do you foresee um, the potential of a dual world where unvaccinated individuals are really kind of collectively um, kind of approached differently, and continue to use health use healthcare services or need healthcare services differently because of the differential risks? Um, You know, how do you see that schools may need to have permanent things in place that separate vaccinated and unvaccinated Um, and going a little broader, would providers and insurers do you foresee a world in which providers and insurers are going to get pushed to seek different payments based on vaccination status or, you know, or antibody status or whatever, you know, whatever the status may be.
0: In some ways, I think the school question is probably a little bit more straightforward. Generally speaking, at the federal level, at the state level, there's a move to not differentiate between the the vaccinated and the unvaccinated Um, in the school setting. uh, I think that everybody has felt like they're, nobody wants to try and differentiate and follow somebody's vaccine status to sort of say you have to do this versus that. Now, that being said, there's probably at a community level, there are communities who are tend to be under vaccinated that will probably have different school policies than than the vaccinated, the more highly vaccinated communities. But those, as you might imagine, the unvaccinated communities are probably going to be less, less restricted because of their tendency already um, to be less um, pay attention to COVID mitigation strategies. So uh, so it will probably be at a community level that there will be differences. The differences will probably actually not um, not play out the way you might think they would play out in terms of being more restrictive for the, for the vaccinated. They will probably be less restrictive, sorry, more restrictive for the unvaccinated. They'll probably be less restrictive for the unvaccinated. Um, so that's the school piece. And then it would be interesting to hear you weigh in also on this piece, but, um, but I think that the, Uh, the whole issue of an insurer and who pays for people who have, you know, made a decision potentially or not had an opportunity to get vaccinated, Um, you know, in the, for the unvaccinated people, are people, are people going to have to deal with paying for those very high healthcare costs that might happen with those um, unvaccinated folks? I know I've heard people talk about it. I do not know where that's going to go. I think that, I think that it won't really be tolerated here in the United States. I know other countries and I'm forgetting if it was Canada or, or um, the UK where they talked about doing that, but, or maybe it was France actually who decided to to do that, but I don't know. Do you have thoughts too? You know, my, I, I think it's going to depend on
1: how the data shake out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when the data are showing that, I mean, at this point, I think it's probably 95% of Americans are estimated to have antibodies and Mm -hmm. those data are even a little bit old. Um, You know, we know that immune, your kind of your overall immune response and protection might vary based on vaccine versus kind of naturally acquired antibodies, like you got sick. Um, I've run into people who got vaccinated and also got sick twice. Mm -hmm. And so I think... I would, we'll have to see what the data do. If the um, risks really start narrowing up as more and more people are exposed, then Mm -hmm. it'll become a moot question. Mm -hmm. But if we see really persistent ongoing differences in risks of severe illness between vaccinated and unvaccinated, then maybe insurance companies at some point will start to do that. But I think it's really important to note that Um, As far as I know, there's no insurance company in the U.S. that differentiates based on whether you got your flu shot or um, whether really you got your tetanus or any of your other routine vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So why COVID vaccination would be treated Mm -hmm. differently than flu or tetanus or measles for that matter is not clear. That would really set a very different trajectory for how we approach vaccination and insurance premiums in general. Mm -hmm. So. Mm So, yeah, I mean, for the COVID piece, we'll have to see what the data show. For the rest of it, it's like, ooh, if we decide to go there, that that's a slippery slope. You see how broad they go. So another question that came in pretty early is, um, did you feel supported by the state political leadership during your work with the state? Um, You know, and the questioner kind of adds, with all the fractures in our culture, Um, He or she's curious whether your whether pre-COVID relationships between departments and organizations within the government remained professional and united, um, Mm. you know, given that there was some acrimony occurring over that time.
0: Mm. Mm. That is such an interesting question. Um, I was like so appreciative and um, really amazed at how well the state leadership actually functioned. And it was interesting because you know, I was a newbie I, I I like walked into the organization having really no idea about how any of the agency what who who what I, I, you know what agency who does what around here um, but they were saying that the State Board of Education um, uh, I worked pretty closely with the State Board of Education and they were reflecting at some point you know they really didn't ever talk to the Department of Public Health because they didn't really need to and it was really great. everybody really appreciated how much people were talking to each other. So certainly, within the executive branch piece, I actually felt like there was a lot of great communication, and a lot of people were really happy to collaborate and, and work together, mostly because we felt like, oh my God, everybody needs us to to actually work really well together. We can't not do it. Um, so the level of professionalism I thought was actually quite high. Um, the legislative, you know, and then there's like, how does the governor work the legislat- legislature and um, you know uh, that that piece is a little bit more complicated. I felt like. I didn't get too much heat from the legislature. I could have gotten heat from people, but I didn't particularly like. Um, there were a couple of people that asked for a lot of help for us to go talk to their communities, but um, but I, I we never I didn't ever experience that there was a lot of contention coming from that direction.
1: Well, that's great.
0: Yeah, which is nice. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a positive a positive message. <laughs> I'm,
1: sh- I'm sure that that made the, j- I mean, it was, I-, I can only imagine how much stress and how much work the job was. So having good collegial and supportive relationships across the agency must have at least helped to make it all bearable. Um, so let's see, to mitigate future outbreaks, if you could wave a magic wand and universally change one behavior in the population, only one, what would we all do differently?
0: I think everybody should get vaccinated, I would probably say. Vaccinated, if I only have one, I'm just gonna say vaccinated. I mean, we are in like such a different space than we used to be because of vaccines. Um, Now, sorry, I I guess actually the question was infections, right, mitigate all infections, was that the question?
1: Ooh, let's see, what was the exact wording? Um, To mitigate future outbreaks.
0: Outbreaks, yeah. I don't know, I still think it's vaccination. Vaccine, you know, they they decrease your risk of being infectious. There's all these really interesting stories now of um, people are all vaccinated and boosted in the same household and one person gets it and then everybody else doesn't test positive, but they have some symptoms that look exactly like COVID symptoms. And it's basically, they're not testing positive probably because they're not shedding a whole lot because they their vaccinations, you know, they're, Prior immunity from a vaccine is like doing such a great job killing off the virus that it's giving them some symptoms because their immune system is actually fighting it off, but they're actually not shedding enough virus to be infectious. So I think the vaccines still are gonna win for actually trying to decrease outbreaks. But
1: I guess if you had number two, you'd
0: say wear your masks. Oh and- yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wear your mask in public situations. Yeah. Not yeah. that I love masks, but you know, like they're like definitely better than physical distancing and shutting things down. So
1: it's certainly true. Certainly true. Um, another question just came in. Um, has long COVID been a consideration in all of this around school openings and and the policy realm?
0: It's a great question. The data on whether or not kids get long COVID is is somewhat we don't have great data. The data we have, the best data we have, doesn't really look like kids get long COVID, certainly not at the rate that the adults seem to get it. So I'm re- relatively reassured and like, you know, it um Uh, It's certainly a discussion, but it's not something that seems to be really prevalent for the younger kids. So that's, but that's just schools and that's the student side. Then there's the teacher side, but the teacher side, I think we've always, I have always had a perspective, like it's really important. We got to make sure the teachers feel protected and have the tools they need to feel like they're protected. So vaccines and allowing them to mask and giving them the ability to have some control over their own classroom, which I think many places do, although there's definitely some some communities that are anti-mask. And so in general, a teacher in that community would have a harder time. So that was definitely an issue that came up sometimes, but making sure that people have their tools in order to prevent long COVID and the adults in the school setting is important too.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting, you know, hearing about different states um, and kind of what the norms are and what the policies are. Um, We have a very good family friend who teaches in North Carolina, And they were in school for the whole year that we were closed, but they had mask mandates. They were, at least in his district, they had mask mandates. Um, I think they were doing half of the kids in the classroom at a time for the elementary school. So they were swapping days. And then Mm -hmm. the second year, um, masks became optional for the teachers. Mm -hmm. And so some teachers chose to mask. Some teachers chose not. Our family friend is quite young and had had COVID before he was vaccinated, and then he was vaccinated and boosted. So he opted not to wear a mask because he felt like his personal risks were, and he also has a music teacher, mm-hmm. which is not exactly the easiest thing to be teaching masked, but um, no singing, no wind instruments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were other teachers in the school who did choose to wear a mask because of their personal decisions on their own risks and um, some of the kids did some of the kids didn't it was really interesting hearing about kind of just what was happening there while different things were happening here um mm-hmm. and i wish we had more data to really tease it out even further now that we are in a largely vaccinated world
0: mm-hmm hmm mm-hmm, yeah yeah. yeah, North Carolina had some great school data, actually, that they came out with. So which we use to help encourage people to do less physical distancing and all that. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's see another question. Um, Does the prevalence of online medical records offer public health departments better access to real time data? Um, the questioner says, I've heard that the CDC checks in with Kaiser Permanente on Monday, to look for infection trends that they can tap into their system to look at overall trending sy- symptoms.
0: Hmm. That is super interesting. Um, I don't know about that Kaiser, that they're able to look into that Kaiser data system. So that's interesting if they can. Um, they certainly have a pretty robust like reporting system for COVID in particular, they developed all these reporting systems. So there's a lot of, um, A lot of visibility for the CDC into the state level data, right? The state had this, I mean, they stood up a crazy data system to try and better understand what's going on on the ground, um, which now, of course, is a little bit limited because so many people have home antigen tests and there's no way to actually report those into the, into the state. You have to like go get a PCR test somewhere in some medical system. So um, so I think the, that level of visibility is mostly through the um, state ongoing access to all of the testing that happens in a medical setting or outside of a medical setting. But absolutely, I mean, I think, you know, in writ large, the access to online medical data is definitely is going to be a game changer and is already a game changer for our ability in general to do better healthcare delivery and public health management.
1: Yeah, I had not heard um, what the questioner asked about with Kaiser potentially sharing kind of, I'm sure it's aggregated and nobody's patient Mm -hmm. records are being revealed. But but I had COVID not that long ago, and I did go into their website where they have COVID, COVID tools, and you can report that you had a positive antigen test, and they basically give you a page of advice. Um, And I think at my age, they basically said, call us if you feel sicker. I mean, they don't even, they didn't even want me to go in for a PCR test. So I wonder, so they may have some information about antigen test results. I mean, who knows how many people actually went into, you know, go into their medical records and tell Kaiser that they have it. But um, anyway, it's just kind of intriguing of how that shakes out. I I think um, there, you know, maybe there is some surveillance happening there, but who knows?
0: Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, sh- the, part of the discussions at some point in like late 2021, I think, was whether or not the state um, Department of Health would even accept non-PCR tests. So like even just an antigen test done in a clinical setting, whether or not they would accept that as counting as a as an infection or not, they eventually were like, yeah, of course we're going to do that. But But it took a while actually for those numbers to start showing up on the state dashboards. So yeah, you know, this question of how do we know yes or no and where is it in our community? How do we document that is actually a really important one.
1: Thank you so much for spending your evening with us Mm -hmm. and thank your your kids and your family for letting us get your wisdom um, this evening. Really appreciate it. Um, I personally really appreciate this work. I've got a bunch of friends who are teachers here in California, and they are so glad to have the students back in the classroom and in a way that they feel confident about being able to return to teaching. So
0: um,
1: on the behalf of a few friends of mine, thank you for your hard work on this and for taking the heat and the lawsuits and everything else.
0: My pleasure, thank you. Yeah, yeah, very meaningful and, you know, very meaningful work. It's hard, but very meaningful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV,